Well, hey there, and welcome to the Green Divas Radio Show. I'm your host for the next almost hour, Green Diva Meg. Um, you know how I've been opening the show? I've been sharing little bits of poetry. I actually wrote some silly poetry last week. I'm very inspired by words and poetry. I'm inspired by many things, including nature. And a very, very dear friend also happens to be one of my very favorite poets on the planet, Carrie Nicole McCaffrey. She came to the studio this week, and later in the show you will hear from her. But in the meantime, I wanted to share a poem with you. One of the things about her poetry that for me is so relevant is her descriptions, her beautiful, vivid descriptions of nature and wildlife. Just it brings you there. It brings me there. So I'm hoping to share a little bit of that with you with this poem of hers from her newest book called Raspberry Summers and the Brush of Thorns. This poem is called Aurora. Imagine space winds, the old spinster of hues, brushed teal and sapphire in the quasar night. She sits, then fingers freckling indigo, above blue flint flakes, breathing out the borealis. Over snowy spruce and cold alpine lakes, her silent laugh tinges the sky, places a spell on you as she stirs a cauldron of color. I don't know. Vivid imagery for me, just saying. I've never seen the Aurora Borealis live and in person, but it's on the bucket list. Okay, so what's on thegreendivas.com right now, you ask? Because I know you want to know. Green Dude DIY with Jeff McIntyre Strasburg of Sustainablog. He did um, a podcast with us, and this post is um, details about making human-powered washing machines out of those big old spackle buckets, also making plastic mats for homeless folks out of uh, plastic baggies. It's good stuff, people. Uh, And, yep, another 365 days here on the planet for Green Diva Meg. Another birthday celebrated. Uh Uh-huh. So I wrote sort of a funny, somewhat silly, almost inspiring midlife musing where I offer 53 random things I've learned in 53 years. There might be something in there for you. I don't know. Uh, So on this week's show, the feature is Liz Carlisle. She's the author of Lentil Underground, Renegade Farmers and the Future of Food in America. People, we just have to say no to those that want you to believe we need GMOs to save the world. That's not true. There is another way, and it's already happening happening in our own heartland. This is a really encouraging book, actually. So uh, I had a really great time speaking with Liz. I hope you'll stay tuned for that. Green Diva's foodie file, um, Holly Thompson shares about bone broth, why it's good for you, and how to make it. Traveling GDs, Alice Ford, beautiful actress and stunt woman and eco-traveler, shares ways to conserve water when traveling. Inspired Green Divas is, of course, with my dear friend, Carrie McCaffrey, who's an author, a poet, and a teacher. As I mentioned, the poem came from her latest book, Raspberry Summers and the Brush of Thorns. You know, I happened to be on the back cover of that book. She had asked me for a quote. I had no idea it was going on the cover. I also found out that another one of my quotes about her poetry on one of her other books. Flattering. Anyway, uh, I'm a huge fan. 
swoon. So it's a great show, inspiring, interesting, encouraging, I hope. Meanwhile, I'm hoping that we can interact out there in social media land at The Green Divas on Twitter and Instagram, at Green Diva Meg, also on Twitter and Instagram. Facebook is The Green Divas Radio Show uh, and Green Diva Meg as well. And I'm, you know, love interacting with all of you. love your ideas and your comments. And so without further ado... I say, have a wonderful green week and enjoy the rest of this show. If your parents ever got your attention by whistling, you know how effective it can be. And a new study shows that humans aren't the only mammals that do it. More on that after this. Everyone wants to be a part of the green movement, and that's a great thing. Going green takes on a whole new meaning when you add tall grass beef to your family's dinner table. It's tender and juicy, and since the cattle graze on the natural grasslands of Kansas, it's also loaded with essential fatty acids and omega-3s that regular grain-fed beef lacks. It's good for you and your family and good for the earth. For more information and to order tall grass beef online, go to www.tallgrassbeef.com. In the 1960s, the television show Flipper brought the amazing antics of the bottlenose dolphin into the living rooms of America. For years, the military has worked with dolphins to locate mines or detect enemy divers. But it's only recently that science has figured out that the language of dolphins, a series of whistles and clicks, is not only unique to each animal but might actually be names that the animal recognizes and responds to, just like human children. As for Flipper, all the dolphins were females because they are better looking than the male of the species. Go figure. I'm Bill Curtis with Earth Matters. The Green Divas love food. Organic, local, fresh, whole, delicious food. Here now is another Green Diva foodie file. I'm so happy to have one of our favorite Green Diva foodies, Holly Thompson. She is an an author. Uh, her book, which is really very a very good book, and I think I gave it to my daughter. Cons- um, Discover you nu- your nutritional style. Holly is spelled H O L L I. HollyThompson.com. Uh, she's a consultant, and as we were goofing around before, she is definitely a Green Diva media darling. Hi, Holly. <laughs> Hi, it's so nice to be with you today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you back. So today I think we're going to talk about bone broth. I've been seeing a lot about bone broth in social media, all over Pinterest, all these groovy pictures. Tell us why. Why? Yeah, it's a a hot new category. It's a new trend. Um, Well, you know, I think this is is almost the pushback to, you know, green, cold, cold green juice for all these past years, and that becoming just such a hot trend, if you right. pardon the, the pun. <laughs> you know, bone broth is, bone broth is a warming, it's a warming antidote to green juice, and okay. it is, you know, it is, it's warming, and look, for those of us who are in the Northeast, you and I were just talking about this awful gray, cold weather and winter yeah. that we're having, yeah. you know, I mean, 
for so many people, a warming cup of bone broth is so nourishing and tastes so good and feels so good to our system. But it's also loaded with nutritional and immune support. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense for this time of year when when every other person has a flu or a cold, right? So is it like uh, made from bones or is it for your bones? It's, you know, good question, and the answer is both. <laughs> okay, good, good. Gen- generally, it refers to being made from bones. So you would you would use, uh, if you're making a beef bone broth, um, the bones that most people prefer to use, I do, are, are marrow bones because right. you are getting so many nutrients, um, minerals like calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, potassium, and, and basically cooking these bones, these marrow bones, with very simple ingredients in a slow cooker for a good 24 hours really allows the, the minerals to release from the bone so that you can readily drink the broth and absorb them. So wow. that's the beauty of it. Um, bone broth is also rich in amino acids like glycine, choline, which are very important for a healthy gut. also helps your digestion. Um, and there are it, it can also contain... Conjointin and glucosamine, which, as you know, both help yeah. to reduce inflammation for your joint pain. So, you know, a lot of people are finding um, finding that this is a fantastic way to improve their health. It's also soothing and feels good, uh, you know, in the cold in the cold gray days of winter. Well, I need some bone broth now. But see, now here's the bummer. Um, I'm I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> there you go. There you um, go. But I'm I'm tempted to bust this one open and get myself some kind of um, organic, grass-fed, happy cows outside kind of bones. And you know, and that's what I always recommend. If you are going to make bone broth, make sure you are getting your bones from an organic, grass-fed butcher because the the all of those if it's a factory farmed cow, all of those nasty hormones and antibiotics and drugs that they're giving those cows settles in the facts and so you do not want to be using bones from cows that are not the way you described you know the other way to do it a lot of vegetarians do allow themselves a little bit of chicken broth yeah you can also you can make broth from a chicken chicken or turkey carcass as well yes going to have a different taste but you know have similar and just as beneficial um benefits that are going to come from a from a chicken bone broth so really you know have it you know have a chicken Enjoy it, and then throw that you know that bone carcass um, in a in a big slow cooker. Usually, you add some carrots, celery, yeah. some onions. I like to put garlic in there. I put garlic little... and cayenne pepper in when I make. Yeah. When I used yeah. to, I haven't made it in a while because I've really, I I have always pretty much made my own chicken broth over the years. Even though I consider myself mm-hmm. a vegetarian, I've had bouts of chicken broth. Um, mm-hmm. because, you know, now tell me, is there really a comparable, um, nutritional value in, in beef or chicken or turkey? Is there a difference? You know, um, some of the smaller bones, um, some of the smaller bones, as they say, have a, a con- contain a connective tissue. So, you know, depending on, um, oh. you know, there are certain collagens that can produce different gelatins. So. You know, it, it really depends. I mean, I would say if you want to get, um, you know, I always say vary your proteins. You know, poultry bones are, contain a lot more cartilage, so you're going to get certain certain nutrients from that. Um, you okay. know, but then the marrow and the meat, beef bones, you're going to get other essential minerals. I would say vary it up. You know, if you are someone who is open to trying bone broth, 
see what you're drawn to um, and what your body craves and enjoys. A lot of vegetarians do allow themselves uh, a chicken broth or, you know, a, um, a stock. And yeah, the important and, and, thing is that you do want to cook it for at least 24 hours okay. so that you are getting as many nutrients as you can from the bones. Um, I'm sure you have a recipe, and hopefully you'll share one with us for thegreendivas.com. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that when, when I have ever, you know, made chicken broth, it's always been in the winter when everything feels kind of tentative health-wise, and I just want that warm, rich, um, and I throw all those vegetables and, like I said, cayenne and garlic and celery. Mm. Yay. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Right. I mean, you – even just talking about it, I am hanging up with you, and I am going to go do that. Seriously. I am, like, ready, man. All right. Well, I am ready. Holly, thank you for another excellent, excellent segment. Um, and people can go to Holly, H-O-L-L-I, Thompson, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N dot com. Um, and we'll talk to Holly again soon. Thanks, Holly. Great. You're welcome. Hope you're hungry. For more easy and delicious recipes and even more foodie information, go to thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com. Where are you headed on your next trip? Have you considered the environmental impact of your adventure? Listen to the Travelin' Green Divas to get tips for healthy, safe, and eco-friendly travels. Well, I am back in the studio with the beautiful Alice Ford, who is an actress. She's a stunt woman. She's so cool. And a TV personality. Mm-hmm. She's got a whole series of YouTube videos, um, both Alice's Adventures and Green and Fabulous. That's right. Good to be back in the Yay. studio with you. I know. I feel so special. Um, so I think today we wanted to talk a little bit about... Uh, Wanted to talk about travel and water and how we can be more mindful of water issues wherever we go, I think. Yeah, I would love to talk about that. <laughs> I think that's what we're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, the, I think the green travel revolution has really began and uh, there's a lot of hotels around the world that are getting on board and doing a lot more to be more mindful of the environment. Mm-hmm. And I think the first thing that you can do as a consumer is try and pick a hotel that is already, you know, adhering to some stricter regulations as far as water conservation goes. Yeah. There's a couple websites that have emerged where you can find green certified hotels. Okay. Um, And I'm actually developing one also that's going to launch in February. Oh, how exciting. Um, It's called Travganic.com. Oh, my gosh. It's not up yet, but you'll be able to book a... Green certified hotels all around the world on there. Um, And I think just so people know what green certified is, uh, that means that, you know, a hotel has met qualifications as far as water quality, as far as, you know, recycling and waste management plans, Mm -hmm. energy saving. um, And they also have to do things with their communities um, and get involved with that kind of thing. And, uh, and also have things in their building that, you know, are better for the environment, right, whether that's, right. 
you know, low energy, VOC paints, right, or energy whatever. efficient windows or, right, or those the, hall lights yeah. that only come on when you're in the hall or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of different ways that people can get qualified. Um, and a lot more hotels are, are getting on board with that. So I think that's the first thing that consumers can do as far as, you know, pick, pick a good hotel that yes. is already helping the environment. Yeah. Um, and then I think after that, you know, depending on where you are, I think everyone should always bring their reusable water bottle when they travel. Yeah. <laughs> and like you don't have to fill it up while you're going through the airport because, of course, they'll take it away from right. you. <laughs> Pack it in your bag. That's right. And then uh, when you get there. And, and a lot of airports now, um, you know, I was just in Colorado, the Denver airport, you know, they have the water bottle filling stations all yeah, in the airport, which yes, is great. I did see that. In LAX does yeah. not have that yet. But, um, you know, a lot of the airports are getting on board. Um, so I think that's a really easy way for you to, you know, help the environment a little. Don't buy plastic water bottles. Um, and I think that when you are in a hotel, you know, put the sign out that says, that you don't want your linens changed. Right. And, you know, if it says hang your towels up so that we don't wash them, hang them up. Yeah. Don't put them on the floor. Yeah. I mean, I think most people, at least I do this, and if this is gross, then maybe maybe I'm weird. But, you know, I, I use my towel a few times yeah, before I wash it at home. I don't I mean, wash it every time. Listen, you're drying off a clean body. Right? Right? <laughs> Come on, people. So, um, you know, I think that's a really great way to save water because hotels – really do use a lot of water yes. doing all of our laundry. Yeah. Um, so that's a really easy way to use less. And I think also just if you're at a hotel, pretend you're at home. Just because you're at a hotel doesn't mean you need to take a 15-minute extra long shower or, <laughs> right. you know, run the bath longer yeah. or yeah. doesn't mean you have to waste more just because you can be pampered. Yeah. Um, I think people need to remember that. And I think be mindful of your your, you know, where in the world you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, on one of my adventures, um, which you can read about on my website, we went to Malaysia. Mm. And it was a really eye-opening experience because, you know, we, we climbed this really tall mountain there called Mount Kinabalu. Mm. But when you fly in, you go to a place called Kota Kinabalu. It's like the main kind of city there. And it the pollution there is just, it's horrible. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, it's just important to reflect on where you are and, yeah, and see yeah. how you can make a difference in your own habits that will will help where you are. You right, know, there right. the pollution is really bad. The reefs are all full of garbage. And, you know, I think it's more important there to really be conservative about what you're throwing away, yeah, you know, when you're in yeah. a place that's already having such a hard time. Yeah, right. Don't so, add to it. Whatever you do, yeah. don't add to it yeah. for heaven's sakes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. The hotel thing, I just – I. Unless there's something horrible gone on in my room, which there usually isn't, yeah, I just put out the sign to, to not so they don't come in at all and do any cleaning. Yeah. You know, yeah. if I'm only there for a couple of days, yeah, and that reduces the the risk of you know, losing towels or yeah, absolutely whatever. Um, yeah, this is all really good, really good, um, really good advice, and it's simple and uh, yet. You know, we have to think about it. We all have to change our habits. Yeah, I think it's important that, you know, everyone is mindful of, of their own habits. And I don't think that just because you're on vacation, you should become a different person. Right, <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, we're going to talk again soon about some other fun green travel tips. Thank you so much, Alice. Thank you. 
Whether you're off to a tropical getaway or traveling for business, make sure to check the Traveling Green Divas on thegreendivas.com for more tips and ideas for healthy, safe, and eco-friendly adventures. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. You've heard of soccer moms and NASCAR dads, so why not climate parents? A national nonprofit is mobilizing the power of families to fight climate change. Lisa Oyos, a mother of two in California, is the director and co-founder of Climate Parents. The group seeks to organize the 155 million moms and dads in the U.S. to call for better climate policies. We need the parent and family voice interjected into this fight for climate action in a very serious way because parents, we cut across all race, class, ethnic, demographic, geographic borders in the U.S. The group advocates for climate change education and calls for kid and climate safe policies to protect children from the impacts of global warming and transition from fossil fuels to clean energy, such as wind, water, and solar. There's so much we can do about it. As parents, the motivation is high to act because this climate change poses one of the most serious threats to our children's futures and to our children's present. Climate parents have organized marches, created petitions, written op-eds, and raised their voices across the nation. Rooted in the family, climate parents are demanding a healthier future for the Earth and our children. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. There are people in this world that just sparkle with an almost magical and radiant energy, leaving a wake of good stuff wherever they go. We just love meeting and talking with these folks who inspire us to be better, do better. Well, this is a very, very special Inspired Green Divas segment for me personally because I have one of my very favorite people on the planet who I don't get to see very often. I had to lure her up here. Um, <laughs> she is, talk about inspiring, Carrie Nicole McCaffrey is a wonderful poet, but she's so many things, including a teacher being a teacher, um, an educator. She's an author. Uh, she's got several book of poems, the latest of which is called Raspberry Summers and the Brush of Thorns. Her poetry is magical. She is really inspired by nature. And and if it's not her words, it's her poets, um, her pictures, uh, like, you know, uh, even on the internet, the pictures of your adventures, um, you know, with the kids hiking or whatever, they're, they're magical. And I love your, your view of nature and you bring it, you bring it to us all through your words. Uh, anyway, so yay. Hi, Carrie. Thank you for having me, Meg. She's in I'm the I'm really studio. excited to be here. Yeah. And, um, I've known you as a friend and a green diva and a radio talk show host and just as an artist i think you're very artistic really? and for so many years and now, wait a minute coming from you that's like so flattering <laughs> i'm like oh i'm, I'm so, so glad to be here <laughs> and your house is beautiful i'm at meg's uh recording studio in her house and i'm 
Um, for those of you who have not seen it, it's yeah. very impressive. I was driving up here and it felt like I was driving one of those old little towns in Vermont yeah. with, the, with the beautiful homes I'm with the porch you. on the front. And then when I came in, it's even more beautiful on the inside, Meg. Well, Booton is a really cool little town having a renaissance. And it's very fun to be here at this time and to live really, you know, within I walked a town. and Right. It's kind of cool. And your view is beautiful. Hey, you haven't been here yet. No, oh, my God. I'm here now. It's great. Bad girl. So... <laughs> Uh, Carrie also has is a teacher in in one of the school districts here in, nearby. Um, she teaches English, right? I teach English in Mendham. In Mendham, yes. so I went into her classroom because she also did the environmental club for a while. I don't right. know if you still I do remember that. that. It had to be about ten years ago, Meg. Was, no, right? I think it was. I was new. Um, really, that long? I kind of knew in the school. Yeah. Oh my God. And you came in to do the environmental club with me. And her students adored her. But no, I think I even came in to do a writing thing once you with did. your. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I've been in a couple times. A couple of times. Anyway, for good reason. And we and, started the garden, member. Yeah. The, uh, the nature. I don't do it anymore, but we had the nature garden that you helped us with, get wow. ideas for. Oh my God. The Garden of Hope. The Garden of Hope. Yeah. I think it's called the Outdoor Learning Center now. It's more scientific, but. It started as the Garden of Hope. And it is the Garden of Hope. Wow. Yeah. All right. So I'm just like going down my lane. <laughs> and it's, it's just all good. so exciting to have eyes on my friend here because, you know, we, we've corresponded and we try to communicate, but we haven't seen each you other. You've been in a, a dear time. friend just for the listeners. And I'm sure any listeners that know you feel the same way. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm blushing. So let's talk about you have you've got four books of poetry that and, and I know you've got volumes of poetry that still isn't published. <laughs> but because I, I just know I know and, and I've never read anything of yours that didn't literally like either floor me or make me bust a tear practically. Thanks, I Meg. see I see nature through your eyes and 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 other scenes as well. You you have some very personal emotional things that you mm -hmm. have shared with people through your poetry, but I'm particularly um wanting to tell people to cuz I think sometimes when we talk about the environment and climate change and saving, well, not saving the earth, saving us, right? I mean, Correct. let's be honest. Yeah. I think when we connect with nature, it makes it easier to take action or easier to, to not throw that plastic bag or not even get a plastic bag. You know what I mean? Right. It makes it easier to make decisions that are healthier for I all of us. I saw one of those memes on Facebook, Meg. I don't know if it was last night or the night before. It was just one of those little pictures, and it said, um, if we go very deep into the woods, something like if we go very deep into the woods and we're very quiet, we realize that we're connected with nature. And it was more prosaic mm. than that. Mm. Sounds like but a John Mueller thing to say, yeah, it was, right? <laughs> it was, and it's true. Like, we're all so busy. We're always staring at our at our um, cell phones, and, and which is it's part of our business now. And, yeah. or, you know, or we're busy with, you know, trying to make ends meet. So... 
it's really important. I, I make myself, there's some days where I don't want to go deep into the woods. I really don't. I'd rather not take the drive to get there. Or, yeah, yeah. And in the summer, I can't really hike behind my house because it's too, it's like Vietnam during the war. <laughs> it's very thick back there and there's ticks and I'm afraid I'm going to get Lyme disease worse than I already have it. I'm blind in one eye from it. I can't see out of the other. But so That's like insane. some days I have to drive far to go to the woods, but I always make myself do it. And once I'm there, I'm always glad because... Mm-hmm. When I get into the deep woods or like the the pine a uh, pine forest, and yeah. all I hear is like a Blackburnian warbler, and and mm. you're sitting against a pine tree, and you and you can really just hear your own soul, and you can connect it with with what's right. Well, you know? it does put things in perspective. So I think in this, you know, in this episode, in this segment, what we're talking about is, you know, this is one way one to way. find to find that connection. And, uh, and right. I'm telling you, if you are in the dead of winter and you're mm-hmm. frozen in your little house and you're not going out to the woods, read some of this poetry. It warms you up. It brings you there. It is a meditation in Thanks, nature. Meg. Let's let's read Thank something you. from your new book. Which... Okay. Well, you know how when, when you write something and then – and you always read my things. When I give you a scrap of paper or a poem, I may not hear it like from you <laughs> from a day or two. And then I'll get a, a text from Meg. So – Meg, I know you always read my poems, but sometimes what we feel is the most important poem or the best poem is not. Right. So I thought I would read this poem because everyone who seems to be reading this seems to really enjoy it. Okay. And it's called Once I Sailed the Seas. And my Raspberry Summers and the Brush of Thorns, mm-hmm. um, which is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and everywhere online. Yay. <laughs> if people want it. Go get but it. But like, it's, um, it's about healing the inner child. and. And and we can heal the inner child in many different ways. And I've been to the Bethlehem Hermitage for spiritual direction a lot mm-hmm. over the last couple of years in Chester. And the hermits there have really encouraged me to go back and heal my inner child in many different ways by not being afraid to go back and face what happened in my life, mm-hmm. to go back to those quiet times in nature that I had growing up in Sleepy Hollow and Pecanico Hills and 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 see where I came from, see the peace that I came from yeah. and try to bring that in any way possible back into my life. And just like you said, to get back into nature, like we need to get there. Like if we're bleeding, we take ourselves to the emergency room. If we're not peaceful, we need to take ourselves to a place of peace to become healed. It's not going to happen just like, oh, I'm bleeding. I'm going to sit here. Like we yeah. need to do things. And one take of the action. things is to think, like to go into the deep woods. So okay. this is about where I grew up in um, Hawthorne, New York, right on the other side of Buttermilk Mountain from Pecanico Hills and Sleepy Hollow. And it's called Once I Sailed the Seas. Mm. Once I Sailed the Seas. When they built the highway by my childhood home, they left a little place where we could play, a retaining pond island with prodigal forest, jungle lush and ringed with goldenrod, purple loosestrife. I'd often pick some flowers as I roamed. Construction workers left behind a cement tub when they were finished, which I didn't know its actual purpose at the time, resembled a boat. So I sailed it to the isle, a solitary voyage, and there reveled in the quiet, hunted bullfrogs and toads, dreamed of other lands and future times. Five years after we moved, my family drove by the pond, the tub still there, moored in sedge. More recently, I couldn't spot it from the road. About a half a century now has passed. I think it sunk or rusted like a wreck, though once I thought it invincible. Could I launch an expedition without my sanity being questioned? I would don scuba tank and mask 
Explore the emerald waters where it sank. Discover something from a time long past. An artifact, perhaps, a baseball or telescope, my white navel hat. But really, we all understand no one survives such a sinking. And though I know my little boy's soul still haunts the place, I remember once I was a captain who vowed to sink with his beloved ship. Ooh, wow. What a what a powerful, powerful visual story that is of a childhood. Like, yeah, like like the the wow, the magical things that we create with what we have. Right. What they left you. And that's a true story. They um that was probably like 1969, 1968, 1970, somewhere in that time, and there was a deep jade retaining pond island that they had built with the Hawthorne Circle back then, so they had done work on the Hawthorne Circle. And I remember I went there, you know, those magic times in childhood. I was like, is it a tub? Right? <laughs> yeah. Is it a boat? Yeah. It's going to float. So I got in it and I sailed it over to that island. And I remember, like, I just remember how cool that was. Yeah. And then we moved from Sleepy Hall. My father got transferred. And I just remembered um, the magic of those times and, and seeing it like five or 10 years later when we drove by and seeing it still there thinking, oh my God, like, you know, that you, you was dated yourself. It was one of the first times you, you could really Half see time passing. You I know. You dated yourself. Exactly. Just just adding in there, girl. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. That's one. Well, I think it also speaks to the fact that it's possible to to be wildly creative and happy as a child without a laptop or a smartphone. I love that interpretation too. I think you're right. You know, it's I important. Mean, when I was a kid, I played in the woods. That's where I, I was a tomboy. Right. And my happy place was the woods. The woods. Oh, yep. my gosh. Exactly. Because yeah. you can find yourself. Kids, I remember. All day. Yeah, all day long. All day long. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, Read us another one, please. Okay. Come on, come on. Well. I want more. Um, Apparently, I always want more. <laughs> I have more. We'll read um, The Delaware at Sunset. Yes. Oh, Yes. The Delaware at Sunset. Gliding past Van Campen, poplar breeze and sycamore, fields various and purple, rich bergamot, loosestrife, the violet-colored clover. I'm a child, newly minted, turning down a dirt road. Fields open colorfully, an Amish clothesline in spring. Once again, I'm powered by grape crush, pedal past long grass, puddle and pool, through bower of barberry, pray for absence of bear, and where thickets cease, river winds. Soon I find suspension, jade refreshment, sunlight and riffles, just me as far as I can see. Later, some middle-aged gents combine canoes, laughing, and for some reason, flying a Jolly Roger on a pole mast. Kind pirates, they see me swimming, wave, but do not board my peace. As fishermen appear, kindle fire on rocky beach, watch me from Pennsylvania's shore. I observe them from a different state. I am ten once more. Grape soda, the bike ride, an impromptu swim. Men finding their boyhoods, fishing, flying the Jolly Roger as Huck once did. The water swirls me gently around, never really moving upstream or down. Every river has such eddies. Each body, soul. Wow. Wow. So 
again, you are rich with descriptions of of the trees and the the herbs, the wildflowers, the bergamot. Bergamot. Does that grow wild? It's bee balm. So it's it's okay. bee balm. It's wild bee balm. So um, it's a kind of a cornflowerish yeah, color. It looks yeah. just like like a cornflower color, yeah. and it smells heavenly. So when the summer is up in the wall pack and up in Stokes, yeah. there's fields of it. It smells so good, Meg. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, again, I, I'm the pink. The picture was painted, mm-hmm. and um, I, I'm with you there on the river. Fueled by grape, <laughs> grape soda, right? But pray for absence of bear. That was pretty funny. <laughs> I know grape. exactly. Well, to get there, I had to go through that bower, Meg, and I, the the trees. They were, I think they were like a Japanese type of barberry. Okay. They were reaching over, and you had to. I had to like t- get off of my bike and like kind of crouch down to get through that last forty yards. And as I was in this bower and it's muddy underneath and I'm trying to drag my bike through because I know the river is right at the other end. I had already kind of driven the bike through the fields. I said to myself, "There's if a bear comes right now, I am basically on its dinner plate. Yeah, you're a bear <laughs> you <know>? hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. So. Well, so if you haven't um, y- y- gotten enough of Carrie's um, poetry, she's got several books, Sleepy Hollow. Uh, to New Hampshire and Walpack in between, Walpack and such poetry, and in the Valley of Glow Trees, which I just love. I love them all. Thank you. Megan. So look You're for my biggest Ke- fan. I, I probably I really appreciate it. Re- you know, ridiculously and happily <laughs> so. Um, Carrie Nicole McCaffrey, right. and uh, go- I really encourage you, especially during this kind of wintry, you know. It's a great time to read and connect and use your imagination through her beautiful words. Thank you, Meg. And I hope everyone goes out and buys it. And let me know what you think about it, too. There's um, on feedback. I would love to know that. And um, you can also visit my website, which is thepoetseyes.com. All right. You heard it. Thank you, everybody. Do it, folks. We hope you're feeling the sparkle. Go out there and light up the world. As Dante said, even a little spark may burst a flame. For more inspiration, visit thegreendivas.com and listen for this and other shows on gdgdradio.com. Well, this is such a great, great interview for me. I loved reading what I, what I got to read. I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I didn't get cover to cover on this because I've had some kind of interesting stuff. But I am going to really dig into this book. Uh, Liz Carlisle is an author. She wrote a book called The Lentil Underground. Or Lentil Underground, not The Lentil Underground. She's also a fellow with the Center for Diversified Farming Systems. And she is here to tell us that we can indeed... Feed the World with Healthy Farming Practices and Sustainable Organic Food. Yay! Hi, Liz. Hi, Megan. Such a pleasure to be with you. Well, I just, I'm like so psyched about the work that you've done to put together this book, which 
is so brilliantly written, and we were talking about it before because at first I picked it up and I was, you know, reading it. And I was like, this is like a novel. Is this a real character or is she wrapping the story around a fictional character? And it's just so well written and it, it draws you in instantly to to the story through character. So tell us a little bit about – well, about yourself. You're from Montana. Um, you're a big sky gal, right? That's right. That's right. Born and raised in Montana. And uh, my folks weren't farmers, but my grandmother was. And from a very young age, I, I appreciated her stories, not just about, you know, the daily aspects of farming, but what she'd learned from that livelihood of working with the land. And so the first direction I took this in was a career as a country singer. I wanted to tell these stories of rural America, of these stewardship traditions, and, uh, you know, see if I couldn't be one tiny part of revitalizing agrarian democracy yeah. through this storytelling. Yeah, I was and, reading uh, that in the author's note. I'm like, wait a minute. She was in Massachusetts, which I had lived up in the Berkshires. So I was like, wait, wait, what's happening? And she's a musician. And that's, <laughs> that's when I really got confused and thought this is going to be a really fun novel. <laughs> yeah, so you know that was sort of my start as an agrarian storyteller, if you will. Yeah. And what I was hearing from farmers around the country as I was touring in country music was that they did have these beautiful agrarian philosophies about how they wish to care for their land and supply healthy food to their communities, but they were stymied by the structure of our current agricultural system, mm-hmm. policies like the Farm Bill. And and so I felt this need to really kind of go back to, you know, my learning and learn about these economic barriers and and learn a little bit more about the science behind farming, too. Uh, So I started out working in a U.S. Senate office. An organic farmer from my home state had been elected to the U.S. Senate to try to address some of these issues with the food system. All right. And then through him is how I met this group of people that, that I've now dubbed the Lentil Underground, <laughs> uh, that for 30 years had been working in this farmer science movement, this social movement, to completely reshape agriculture in this part of the country. Let's just jump back. You mentioned the farm bill. And I just, I feel like there's this dark undertone because I can you know, I really have tried to understand the farm bill and it it is only mostly annoying and frustrating in that the, the only conclusions I come to is that, you know, we're paying a lot of industrial farmer subsidies for crap that is largely going overseas anyway and I'm confused. So just give us like a 101 on what the farm bill is. Yeah, well, I think you gave a pretty good short summary there. (laughs) Uh, The Farm Bill is a piece of legislation that's actually only about 25% about production agriculture and about 75% about, you know, how we deal with food for schools and food for people who don't have enough. Mm, Um, And in the 70s, those two groups of people came together to form this one bill. And the sort of strange uh, deal that they made was that we would pay a lot of money to farmers, initially in the form of these direct subsidies. Now it's much more done through crop insurance, but it it amounts to the same thing. We would subsidize corn, soybeans, wheat, and cotton um, principally, and and we would create these low-cost processed foods, and then we would dump them, yes, in other countries, and then also... Um, you know, in the system that serves our students at school Mm -hmm. and, you know, also low-income families uh, Mm -hmm. through these commodities. 
And so now what we have is both a problem with agriculture, an environmental problem with agriculture, an economic problem where farmers are having a tough time, and health problems uh, with everybody who goes through these school systems where they're eating this food, and particularly in low-income communities. Yeah, and, and these, so, yeah, I remember there were like five crops. Well, what I also came to understand is that at, at, at least it was, and, and this, by the way, this is a bill that comes out every five years, and it's like a two-year ordeal, right? <laughs> right, and the good news is it is getting better. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I talk a little bit in this book about some of the really good programs that have been added to the Farm Bill that are supporting farmers like the ones I work with Mm -hmm. who have a completely different starting point, which is what food would we grow if we wanted to take care of our land and also feed healthy food to people? Right, right. And so, I mean, at some point in this, strawberries, broccoli, uh, you know, things that, that we think of as fresh produce were considered specialty crops because they weren't in these five main grain things, right? Right. That's right. And then, you know, other crops were just not in there at all, like lentils, for example. Mm -hmm. So when these farmers started growing lentils, believe it or not, you couldn't get crop insurance for them. So, you know, here's an area where at some point in your career, you're going to have a hailstorm that's going to take out your whole crop. If you're growing wheat, the government is going to make you whole for that loss, you know, so that you don't go bankrupt. But if you're growing lentils, you know, until quite recently, about 12 years ago, that was your own risk that you took. If that hailstorm took out your lentils, you weren't able to get insurance on those lentils. So, you know, that was certainly a deterrent to people to move away from these monocultures of corn and soy and wheat. Okay, so let's now that I've just totally sidetracked us with the farm bill and stuff, let's go back to your book. And and it's really, you know, it starts with with your research and, and going to meet this man, Dave. Tell us a little bit about how that evolved. Well, you know, so I was in the Senate office uh, working for Senator John Tester, an organic farmer from Big Sandy, Montana. And in my job, I spoke on the phone quite a lot with farmers from Montana, and they were making suggestions for policy. And I kept hearing, you know, that lentils were a really important part of moving towards a sustainable food system. And this was because if you grow just wheat, you rely on chemicals to supply the fertility that the wheat takes out of the soil every year, right. nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to get away from being so reliant on those chemicals, you're going to need to supply that fertility with a plant. And lentils being from the bean family and also you know, being a crop you can grow without irrigation in an arid climate yeah. like Montana with a short season, yeah. that was the way people could be organic there. So they said, you know, I I grow lentils. That's how I do it. And I said, gosh, where'd you get that idea? And that story always circled back to this guy in Conrad, Montana, named David Oyen, who turned out to be the first guy in his county back in the 80s to plant lentils. And, you know, of course, I felt like I had to meet this guy. (laughs) So uh, I ended up starting a graduate program at Berkeley as the context for doing this much deeper research project into how this movement ever started for people to stop growing wheat based on chemicals and start growing a diverse rotation based on the fertility provided by lentils. I love it. And, you know, I was reading a little bit about, I mean, lentils are a really, really hardy crop that, like you said, they provide the nitrogen for the soil for the next crop coming or whatever. And so, I mean, 
it's a great idea. And lentils as a food, personally, I'm not a lentil fan. Just got to be honest. I'm not a lentil <laughs> fan. I obviously eat them and, I, and I've included them in things. But, I mean, as a food, they're like a superior food. Yeah, they've been the staple for working people since the beginning of agriculture. So 10,000 years ago, people started growing grains and they started rotating lentils with their grains, partly because of resupplying the soil with this key nutrient, nitrogen, and partly because, yeah, you know, high in protein, high in fiber, high in a lot of micronutrients as well, folate and iron, uh, 56% higher in antioxidants than blueberries, just a, a really wow. complete food. Um, and something that, you know, exists in culinary traditions all over the world. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, a lot of people think of lentil soup. Uh, some of the ways we prepare lentils in the U.S. maybe maybe aren't the most exciting. Um, but, you know, go to an Ethiopian restaurant, and, yeah. and if yeah. you get a combo, you'll get Messer Wat, the spicy lentil dish. Oh, see, I like uh, that, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know how easy that is? That is a five-ingredient recipe. Really? Um, I actually have I have a blog online about cooking that and then using it as a template and adding different spices for different days. Ooh, um, what a good idea. I'm going to try yeah, that. Yeah, all you need is an onion, mm-hmm. a spice that you like, mm-hmm. lentils, olive oil, and water. And you can make the most incredibly flavorful stew in less than an hour. Okay, I'm on it. I'm going to go check. What is your blog, by the way, so people can go look at that too? Yeah, so the the website is lentilunderground.com, and, and that particular, that was a guest post on cooking with pulses. Uh, so, you know, you can go direct to cooking with pulses, or you can find it from lentilunderground.com. <laughs> so, so tell Great. us a little yeah, bit I mean, about... Cooking healthy food shouldn't have to be hard. <laughs> no, 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 no stress. We're all low-stress green divas over here. <laughs> So you you really um, you went out and met with Dave and and I loved your initial description of meeting him. First of all, you're just a wonderful writer, so it's it's so fun to read your book. But but I know that there's a journey here. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it was really personal for me. I'm from Montana. I had come to this big moment of change in my own life where I didn't feel like the path I was on was sustainable or, you know, moving towards a positive future. And I came back to my home state, you know, really looking for my elders in a sense. Um, Mm. Who was it who could be a mentor to me about, uh, you know, how to live well in in harmony with the planet and with other people, really? And so, uh, you know, through a series of events that I talk about in the book, I found my way to Dave. and we had some parallels in our path, which were pretty striking. Yeah, and and Inclu- then he including your, your to- one of your professors or someone you, uh, Professor Brown, is it? Yeah, he had studied with a man named Joseph Brown, who was from my hometown of Missoula. He had been a college student in my hometown. And this was somebody who was known to my parents. Um, actually, sort of helped introduce my parents. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and who was. Um, this larger-than-life scholar of American Indian spirituality. Yes. And, uh, you know, so it was interesting for Dave. He was this farm kid from Conrad, and he ended up in religious studies at a University of Montana in Missoula and came back to the farm with a couple of really important ideas. And one was that we needed to get off chemicals. You know, he'd read Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, and, and he was seeing, you know, people getting cancer and these kinds of things. And then he was also working with Joseph Brown and and learning about this 
fundamental indigenous belief that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, gosh, we have um, something like 12 American Indian nations in Montana. So we're mm. very much surrounded by indigenous perspectives on environmental management. Yeah. And just the idea that, you know, you need to work with Mother Nature. It's not about coming up with a recipe and trying to force a form of management on your land. Uh, you know, that that's just the wrong way to think about it. Well, I just really liked this guy, Dave. Very rooted in uh, some wonderful values, I think, and uh, quite smart, quite savvy, and and an interesting mix of, you know, what he learned from his parents and grandparents out of a sort of agrarian tradition of community organizing and a land ethic, and also, you know, being involved in the environmental movement and the anti-war movement and some of the, the knowledge that came out of his generation right. and being connected to a number of young people who are engaged in a whole new series of environmental and social movements now. Uh, I think he's kind of an interesting mix of, um, you know, American sustainability activism in that way and, and all these different strains and traditions that have contributed to, you know, what might seem like uh, one tradition, but is really um, a blend. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do. I, I really want to recommend that everybody grab this book because it's a compelling story and it's a story of hope too because there, there is change being made. There are farmers that are resisting this. Uh, not only are they changing, but they're they're showing us that we can indeed live in a, in a happier, healthier way in harmony with the planet, uh, not resisting. Because there's, there's always these naysayers that say, well, you can't feed the planet on, you know, locally grown organic food. And I thought, really? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't buy that. <laughs> I don't buy it. And you're saying, no, farmers like Dave – and the group of farmers that he's worked with are changing that paradigm. That's right, yeah. I mean, that's what I love about it, too, is it's it's not only a hopeful story of what's possible, it's actually a hopeful story of what is already being done. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and a model that we can look to as exactly that. You know, if you're, if you're in a conversation with one of those naysayers and they say, no, I, I don't think organic food is going to be something people can earn a living with on a large scale. Well, what about this person with a 2,000-acre farm in Montana that's farmed in 36-foot strips and rotates 24 different crops, you know? <laughs> and seems to be doing just fine. Thank you very much. Yeah, and in fact, not just that, but if they hadn't made that transition, many of these people would now be bankrupt. So, you know, I, I think the answer to that is, you know, the question of can we feed the world with organic is yeah. can we feed the world with industrial methods? Yeah. And in Survive. any kind of yeah. medium to long-term scenario, the answer is we are depleting uh, the resources that underpin our agricultural system so rapidly yeah. uh, with the industrial model that we have no choice but to shift. When you say that, I think of the arsenic in showing up in rice because they're on fields. I mean, many of the the, the rice that's much of the rice being grown in this country, I believe, is on top of soil that used to be, I think, used for cotton, if I'm not mistaken. And for some reason, whatever they used, it just doesn't go away. Yeah, arsenic is a good example of a very persistent. Uh, chemical. Right, right. And so thus, you know, it, it's uh, having an effect on f- crops many years later. It's not something we should be eating in large doses. <laughs> no. Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> so anyway, I, uh, the book is Lentil Underground, 
it's a movement. It's a wonderful book and a, and a really good read, and I highly recommend it. Liz Carlisle, thank you so much. And people can also go to lentilunderground.com. Thank you, Liz. That's great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Green Divas Radio Show. Listen to the latest Green Divas shows every day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on GDGD Radio at gdgdradio.com or get the GDGD Radio app for free or access our huge catalog of podcasts on demand on your favorite podcast network, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and of course, along with all kinds of great posts about living a deeper shade of green on thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com. Thank you.